0: morning. That will be my wife. Thanks for that, love. (laughs) Thank you for those words that were too kind, Mary. Um, It's a privilege to preach to you for the first time face to face this morning, and I've really enjoyed getting to know some of you in my time with the church here, and I look forward to getting to know more of you in due course. Today is the Sabbath, a day set apart for worship, for renewal, and for rest. But I wonder how it actually feels for you. Is it just hard work getting yourself, or if you have kids, getting the kids to church? Is church a chore? Does it refresh your soul? I think maybe you shouldn't answer that because I might have a crisis of confidence as a minister. Do you actually get a break from work on the Sabbath? Parents are looking at me now thinking you have no idea. (laughs) For those of you in paid or self-employment, is this a day of rest or do the other six days of work or five days of work spill over into this day? Does your Sabbath actually renew your relationship with God, your relationship with others, and with your own soul? Or do you find yourself slumping on the Sabbath and wishing that tomorrow wasn't Monday? And so I just wonder, what is your experience of the Sabbath? Now, these are questions around Sabbath as one day in seven, and that's a very important biblical and practical concept. But I think we can think of Sabbath in other terms as well. Sabbath is actually an attitude. Sabbath is an approach to life. I suggest that Sabbath is a way of turning to God and releasing that which we tend to take hold of tightly and cling to, and then we find it difficult to actually unclench our hands. And the sorts of things we hold tightly to are things like the identity we derive from our career, perhaps, or from raising children, the acquisition of material possessions, or even that cause in life, that great social or just cause that you devote so much time and energy to, but then you find it difficult to hold it lightly. Sabbath as a practice and an attitude helps us unclench our hands and trust things again to God. It's about letting go and saying to God something like this. You are my provider. You keep the world on its axis, I don't. My labour in life is only fruitful when it's performed in relationship with you and offered back to you. You, Lord, are my true rest, the deep stillness that my soul hungers for. I choose to rest this day or in this moment so that I may learn to live in and from your eternal stillness. Sabbath reinstates our trust in God. We're going to explore the relationship this morning between Sabbath and trust and the relationship of both to thankfulness. Because thankfulness plays a unique role in helping us trust God and experience Sabbath rest. And to see how Sabbath, trust and thankfulness fit together, we're going to look at Israel as they meander across the wilderness, and particularly at the point in time where God begins to provide manna for them. And then I'm going to say something about a challenge that I presently face around trust, thankfulness, and rest. Quite a personal challenge. But first, Israel. One month into their big migration from Egypt to Canaan, Israel had a good grizzle at God, via God's unfortunate representative, Moses. They were hungry. Those of you who do have children will know what a hungry, grizzling child sounds like. (laughs) Moses got an earful. God responded with remarkable patience, though, and an equally remarkable miracle. He said this, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And so he did. So for the next 40 years, as stateless migrants, Israel was divinely fed manna in the morning and quail in the evening. And the UN World Food Program couldn't have done a better job. Julie and I lived in Hong Kong for a number of years, and we spent some long weekends in a quiet corner of Macau. Not in the casinos, though we popped our our nose in to have a look. But our favourite restaurant in this quiet corner of Macau was an authentic Portuguese place called Fernando's, and it served mouth-watering grilled quail – apologies to those of you who are vegetarian – and the most glorious fresh bread that you dipped olive oil in. And they had a sign on the wall that said, don't ask for butter, we won't give you any. (laughs) Go the Portuguese. If Israel's dining was anything comparable, they were well looked after by God. But what's interesting about God's Portuguese platter of quail and manna is not just the miraculous provision of it, but specifically what God says about how and why he's providing it. He says to Moses this, each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them. Interesting. Test them how. He says how, whether they will follow my instructions or not. You see, the manor in quail is not just miraculous provision. It's also actually a divine test of Israel's trust and obedience. And unlike Fernando's, which is open for seven days, God's kitchen was only open for six days. Yet Israel was not left hungry on the seventh day because God said this, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be be twice as much as they gather on other days. And so those Israelites who snuck out of their tents on day seven to see if Fernando's was still operating were met with more than just a blunt sign refusing them butter. God rebuked them severely by saying, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Julie and I used to actually overorder at Fernando's precisely so we could take some leftovers back to our accommodation and enjoy them the next day. How biblical of us. <laughs> Why was God so particular about the seventh day? Because God actually took his chef's apron off on the seventh day, he rested from feeding the people on the Sabbath. Now we tend to think of the Sabbath in terms of the law, obedience, and Israel's practices. We forget that the Sabbath is grounded in the nature of God. Don't forget that God first modelled Sabbath in the account of creation. We read in Genesis, And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. After six days, God put his feet up and delighted in his labour. And in Exodus, he is intent on teaching Israel to do likewise why because israel is called to reflect god's nature just as we are including a rhythm of work and rest which is precisely the rhythm that egypt so violated with its dehumanizing practice of slavery and a seven-day working week israel was to rehumanize itself in the best possible sense, by imitating God, in whose image they were made, as are we. And so let me say, rather pointedly, when we fail to practice some form of Sabbath rest, we actually fail to do two things. Firstly, we fail to trust in God's ability to provide for us, like those who snuck out of their tents on the Sabbath looking for extra grub. But secondly, we actually fail to imitate God's nature, which is precisely what we are called to do as human beings made in God's image and specifically as followers of Jesus, God incarnate. Now, how does thankfulness fit into all this? Well, the refusal to trust God manifests itself in in ingratitude and the Exodus account of manna in the wilderness opens with Israel bitterly complaining. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, saying, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They weren't happy. And unlike a hungry, tired child who we might have some sympathy for, they would warrant our sympathy, even if their complaining annoys us, Israel truly angered God in the wilderness by forgetting again and again that he had already proved his faithfulness, as we saw from that reading in Exodus chapter 6, by delivering them from Egypt, and therefore he would certainly provide for them. God was worthy of their trust and gratitude, yet Israel withheld both again and again and again. My question to us is... Are we any different? And so I want to tell you about a challenge that I'm presently facing in a trial that Julie and I share together. On January 27th, our house flooded. not how you want your house to look, not the Friday night we had in mind that evening. Now, I want to sensitively acknowledge that we are not the only people in St Augustine's who were affected by the flooding uh, in late January. Others in this church have also faced loss, as have so many New Zealanders. I share a little of our story, not to elicit sympathy for us, but to highlight my own challenge, my own very present challenge to to give thanks to God and trust God in the midst of quite difficult personal circumstances. Our place was a lovely little two-bedroom unit that we saw very much as a gift from God. Now, again, let me say, I know that not everyone can afford to own their own home, certainly in Auckland. So I'm aware that we are speaking from a place of privilege. And I do not mean to imply that owning a home is a divine blessing. However, we saw answers to prayer as we returned from Hong Kong, as so many believers do when they pray for God to provide them with a suitable place to live. And one, let me just tell you, one of our more audacious prayers was space to shelve 30 boxes of books. That's what happens when a minister and a teacher uh, live together. You know, it's, a, it's a ridiculous request. What two-bedroom unit has space for that? And yet we bought a place that had a carport that had, a, we had an unconsented conversion into a recording studio, the sort of grungy, dark space. We tinkered with it and produced this. An office, library, spiritual direction space with 30 metres of bookcasing. Actually, to be precise, 14.75 metres each for Julie and I. <laughs> and there's a little bit of masking tape that defines where her books end and my books begin. So much for sharing all things in marriage, right? The external office didn't flood, you know, thank God for that. The house rebuild may take up to a year, the place is trashed, it will need to include no doubt extensive drainage works to safeguard it against future flooding, it's just a dreadful situation. We face very difficult and uh, quite costly decisions ahead. But I'm not here to, to grizzle and complain, uh, but clearly I am. LAUGHTER <laughs> Six, six nights after we flooded, as we went to sleep in tem- temporary accommodation, mercifully and generously provided by Julie's employer, an incredible gift, um, I said to God, speak to me in some way tonight. We were absolutely physically and emotionally shattered. We had fought floodwaters for two nights because it rained very heavily three nights after um, that. And we had... Um, Uh, Cleaned up the property. Uh, We'd packed a house overnight and we'd moved house the next morning. All that happened in five days. We were absolutely wasted. And uh, I went to, as I went to sleep, really, I felt such a desperate need to know that God was somehow present and that God might speak something uh, to me. And so I said, God, you know, speak to me in some way tonight. I was very much in shock, actually, and struggling to really accept what had happened to us. And I had some very disturbed sleep, as you can imagine, but in the depths of the night, a succession of thoughts just passed through my mind, quick flashes, and some of you who pray and and hear God in this way will recognise that God sometimes speaks in the night. And the thoughts were these. First, an acute conscious awareness of suffering, which we were in, followed by the thought that thankfulness was a key to staying spiritually and emotionally well in it all. I was unravelling emotionally over what had happened to us. Then a very kind of clear sentence, just a thought passing through my mind. This is about growth in character. <laughs> wow. Followed by, the single, followed by this word just lingering in my mind, perseverance. Perseverance. All this happened in seconds, and I woke and and wrote it down because I sensed this was God's word to me, specifically. Now, I'm not attributing the flood to God. Don't go in odd directions with all of this. I'm not saying that God chose to test Julian, my trust in him, any more than he was testing anybody else's faith with floodwaters and rains. But as with Israel in their vulnerable state in the wilderness, God was actually inviting me to a particular response. His invitation to me was to practice thankfulness despite our circumstances and to accept that this painful journey could mature me and shape my character in a way that might honour God. It's very tempting to say to God, Uh, Thanks, God, but no thanks. (laughs) This is, of course, what Israel said every time they complained. Bitterness and ingratitude tempt every one of us when when we suffer. And I can assure you it tempts me. Job's wife said to Job in the midst of his trial, curse God and die. Now, some St. Augustine's formational community groups, which some of you are in, which are wonderful, which is wonderful, are following the teachings of John Mark Comer and practising the way as you engage in the Sabbath series. And on the Sabbath practice of delight, John Mark Comer says, sorrow is inevitable in life, but joy is not. Sorrow will come to visit your life with or without your permission, but joy we have to choose and to keep choosing it over and over again. That's essentially the choice I face right now. I could yield to self-pity, fear of what, of what lies ahead, ingratitude, and sometimes I do exactly that. Or I can choose to give thanks, because that's what God has called me to do. And there are, in fact, many things to be thankful for. And let me say that to give thanks is not to suppress grief. We are grieving the damage done to a little house that we loved. You don't have to suppress grief or practice a false triumphalism that denies the pain of suffering in order to still choose thankfulness and trust. Hiding painful feelings won't help, and God doesn't ask us to do that. Why do you think we have the lament psalms? We're invited to bring our anguish to God. We're invited to grieve. And then we're invited to move from that temptation to bitterly complain to a place where we actually declare our trust and even our gratitude and thankfulness to God. And I just want to say, that's what it takes for Sabbath peace to permeate our hearts, our minds, even as we endure suffering. And so this is not about me, us, our house. This is about you. This is about us, the body of Christ, and how we walk with God. So what circumstances, let me ask you, what thing in life Do you find difficult to trust to God at present? What is your wilderness journey? Your point of pain, your point of suffering, your house flood, if you like, your hunger and deep need. Where does God invite you to trust him even though you feel that resistance within and that temptation to curse, to complain? What manner and quail has God provided for which you can give thanks and be assured that God will walk with you and sustain you in this journey of life? I just invite the band up. And I say to all of us, Sabbath rest and inner stillness are yours and mine to enter through choosing to trust God and give thanks, even in painful situations. And so we're going to take a minute, in quiet, just to allow God to bring to each of our minds the circumstance, the point at which we are invited by God to hand something over, to trust him, and to declare our trust and thankfulness. And if something comes to mind in the next quiet minute, I invite you to pray, Lord, I choose to trust you and to give you thanks. Fill me with your peace. Let's take a moment of silence.